0: Hey, what's going on guys welcome back to another episode of pain to profits i'm your host samson jagoris and every single week we unpack the knowledge wisdom and expertise of entrepreneurs to help you guys save time and level up on your entrepreneurial journey so that you don't have to experience as much pain and you can more quickly go to profits and today i got chelsea mandel with ascension real estate advisory they're a corporate real estate advisory group and they specialize in what's called the sale lease back and if you're an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur wanting to make the entrepreneurial leap and you're trying to figure out how you might be able to do a no-money deal, then this is the episode for you. But without further ado, Chelsea, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So before we go too far down the rabbit hole of the sale leaseback, who is Chelsea Mandel? And how the heck did you get to where you are today?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So... Who am I? I like to be called the Sale East Back Queen. Now I'm just kidding. But yeah, I mean, basically, you know, I kind of found myself in Sale East Backs totally unintentionally. You know, I was in a more traditional real estate private equity role, just buying, you know, mainstream apartments and retail. Then I kind of got thrown into a more private equity and credit role. When I moved over to a a private equity, you know, standard middle market private equity firm in New York, that was building a sale leaseback strategy. And so I say thrown into it because I was starting a sale leaseback fund and I had no idea what a sale leaseback was. And I think I was like, I don't know, 22 at the time or so. So I was young and green and didn't really know much about anything. But here I was, you know, raising a half a billion dollar fund, directly working with the portfolio manager for this firm's, you know, first real estate strategy. And yeah, we got it done. So, you know, I was in this new strategy, kind of learning on the job while fundraising, while trying to tee up our first, you know, deals, because it's always easier to fundraise when you have deals ready to go. And, you know, I kind of just learned on the job, honestly, what a salee spec was really being at the intersection of, you know, credit and real estate, which I sort of had, you know, experience in both fields at the time.
0: And you then jumped from that firm to another firm, if I think I remember the story correctly. And then there was this cataclysmic event where you finally said, all right, enough is enough. I've sold enough real estate, made enough people, enough money. And now I'm ready to go do my own thing. But what was the transition point? You did that for a few years and then moved on to the next one. And the reason I ask is you'll constantly hear me say on the pod that there's like four ways that we get into entrepreneurship. We're either born into the business. We spend seven to ten years working in the career. We go bang our head against the wall. We find a mentor. And bonus number five, some combination of all those things. I'm that guy, right? I did all the all the things, but what was yeah. your, your story?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I started on the investment side of Sally Spax, which I think is unique for really anybody who ends up in, you know, an advisory role. Typically you go from the opposite, from advisor to investor. I was lucky that I really started in investing, you know, right out of college. And so having that investment experience going into the advisory role, I think made me a better advisor because I could understand what I'm selling from the shoes of, you know, someone who's going to be ultimately buying the property that I'm selling. And so I actually went from investing in Sally SPACs to joining a brokerage firm where I was selling Sally SPACs, you know, again, working for a firm, not having started my own firm yet. But I was then at that brokerage firm for about three years where kind of like you said, I, you know, made a bunch of money and was really excited about what I was doing, but I was making you know, cash and I was making the owners of the firm really wealthy and building equity in their business. But at the end of the day, when my deals closed and I got paid my commission check, like that was it. You know, I was building okay. a reputation for other people, not for myself.
0: Yeah, I love that intro. My entrance into real estate was very similar. I started on the investment side. And when you get really good at underwriting and financial modeling, it just gives you a whole different perspective on how the deal is actually going to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I see the same kind of thing in, um, in business, brokerage, business acquisition, where the brokers are really good at like hyping up the deal and like building a discount cash flow statement, but they have no understanding of how the debt markets come together and how the next right. person's gonna ultimately buy it. Um, so that sounds like that's been a huge advantage for you. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's very what similar, like even with thinking about the debt markets and financibility of a business, it's the same thing for real estate. If we're structuring a sale lease back where it's unfinanceable and we're only relying on cash buyers, like we have to think about that when we price it up. We have to think about that when we're talking about our marketing plan and who we're going to show the opportunity to. So it's exactly the same thing. The things that you think about as an investor definitely allow us, you know, having been in that investment role to structure deals better for our clients because we can see The obstacles and challenges and you know benefits also that investors are going to see when we ultimately market the opportunity
0: yeah i'm super interested to know what your your process and approach is there with sellers right because i I feel like we're still it's slowly shifting to more of a buyer's market but there's still this uh unreasonable expectation of what pricing used to be and what it currently is and uh you know we've we've walked away from deals and uh on the brokerage side to just say hey we're not a good fit like if that's what you want to take it to the market at we're probably not your guys because we know it's probably not going to sell. Right? Yeah. It's going to sit there. But how do you guys tackle that?
1: I mean, it's a great point. Like on the advisory side, I think some people don't understand like necessarily that we actually spend money and incur costs in marketing right. these opportunities. So we don't just take on anything that falls in our lap. If we're dealing with a seller where we know like, you know i would say or we don't have greater than like 80% confidence that we're going to be able to transact at the pricing that they're looking for at the terms that they want we'll say no because we're spending money we're spending our time time is our most valuable resource and we can you know we're a lean team. So we can't just staff a bunch of people on deals that we don't think, you know, have 80% plus likelihood that we're going to be able to close. So we say no to opportunities or we tell sellers, hey, look, we disagree with your, you know, your pricing expectations. We don't think that's realistic. If you are willing to come down to the level that, you know, we're confident we can execute at. We're happy to take it on. But our model is 100% success fee. We only get paid when we close a deal. We spec all of our own marketing costs, all of our own photography, even just putting together our materials. So we're not going to spend the time and the resource and even just the energy, you know, working on opportunities where sellers, we just feel are unrealistic. But yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, to what you're saying, It is, you know, I think that gap is closing a bit, like, you know, the seller kind of bid-ass spread, you know, between what buyers are willing to pay and what they think is realistic. I do think that's coming in a bit. And I think it's, you know, to the credit of people like us on the advisory side where we're working on both sides saying, look, you know, cap rates are coming down or going up, but, you know, whatever they're doing, we're guiding both sides so we can hopefully kind of bridge that gap a little bit better because that's where, you know, when you bridge the gap, that's where transactions happen.
0: Yeah, 100%. So how long were you working for somebody else before you finally made that transition into doing your own thing?
1: Yeah, so I was on... So initially, I was at Starwood on the investment side for about two years. Then when I joined the amount of capital, I was there for about three years. Then when I joined a brokerage firm, I was there for about three. So what did I say? I'm supposed to be good at math. So I guess eight years um, of, (laughs) you know, being working for somebody else before I made the switch and, you know, launched our firm, Ascension. Um, So yeah, I guess eight years you know, between investing and advising for another firm before I really made a, you know, a bet on myself.
0: Yeah. And you had done like $2 billion in sale leaseback, I think, at that point?
1: Yeah. So I, yeah, I mean, I had a really great run at it. Like I said, I got thrown into sale leasebacks right in the heat of the market. I mean, we raised the fund. We were doing deals day one at New Mountain. So I closed about half a billion dollars there. Then at Stream, I did about a billion dollars in sales on, you know, on that, Kind of three year period, and then you know, since Ascension's launched, we've closed about another now probably closer to six hundred million, so a little over two billion. But yeah, I mean, about half a billion dollars of that was with Ascension, so I, I wouldn't give credit to that. I would say half, a billion and a half before I made the move, you know, to my own firm.
0: So what was what was the mindset shift? Because I feel like a lot of our audience kind of gets stuck there. They're maybe working in a career, they're killing it, making great money, and now they're ready to go take the entrepreneurial leap. But yeah, What what did you go through? What was that process for you? What did that look like? And
1: It's totally psychological. I mean, it's one, I think it's insane. I think it's amazing that people do it, but you have to have something a little bit insane like to your character because yep. it's totally crazy. If someone else can pay you and you can earn a living on a very low you know, risk kind of basis and you say, no, screw that. I'm going to make a bet on myself and I'm going to just eat what I kill and, you know, be responsible for not only my, you know, well-being, but also the financial wherewithal of the people that work for me. I mean, it's totally crazy, but I think it's, yeah, it's a psychological shift. I mean, one day I was just like, I'm the hardest worker I know. I bet on myself. I feel like, you know, without sounding vain. I'm like, if there's someone I'm going to put money towards and go bet on their success, it's going to be myself because I can control that. And I know the person I am. So I think it is a psychological shift where you just have to get comfortable with being scared, being vulnerable, like having, you know, a risk appetite. But also I think some of it is, you know, to the credit of kind of my surroundings and my life, like having a safety net, right? Like my worst case scenario and the ultimate downside and I fail is, I fall back on my resume. I have the investment experience. I have you know that cushy resume that I could go get an investment job that pays well. And you know, I think having that safety net, having the foundation of you know a really strong family and support network, and my husband, like those things, all make it a little bit less scary. But it's still extremely scary. And you're, I think, crazy for wanting to do it. But I think those are the entrepreneurs that exist, and you know, especially in this country, is like it's a positive sense of crazy.
0: Yeah, you got to have a little ego to think you could actually pull it off. Right. Um, And you're constantly battling trying to keep that intact. Do you think when you were 23 that you could have gone and done what you've done now? Or was it necessary for you to go through all the experience and the resume building in order to make the leap?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I would say it's possible that I would have done it because the ego was still there at the time, but I think I would have failed, honestly. I think I'm I'm happy that I waited. I got that experience. I gained, like, tools in my tool belt. Like my mom always says, like, you want to take the experiences that you have, you know, the learnings that you have, the training programs that I was really lucky and thankful to have, and then go off and, you know, try and build something on your own because I think that builds that safety net of what you can fall back on. Whereas if I just went into this, you know, from day one, I think one, without having the investment experience that I had, I wouldn't be as successful on the advisory side as I am. And two, I wouldn't have that like resume, that foundation that really gave me the comfort to go out and take that leap of faith. So I don't think I would have, yeah, I don't think I would have done it now that I'm just hearing myself speak. I don't think there would have been a situation where I would have felt comfortable at 23 and I don't think I would have been successful doing it.
0: So are entrepreneurs born or are they made?
1: A great question. I think it's inside. I definitely think it's intrinsic. The spirit, like the entrepreneurial spirit, I think is there forever. I think that's something that you're born with. And it's circumstantial, like the environment that you're in that kind of allows you to, you know, take that latent like entrepreneurial spirit and actually convert it into something that, you know, you can become or you can actually do in the real world. But I think, you know, if you look back at probably most entrepreneurs, you know, in their entrepreneurs in their childhood, like they had some spirit. They were either scrappy, you know, I was Mm. organizing the prom limo and taking a cut and making spreads in, you know, high school. (laughs) Right. Like there's some level of scrappiness I think that exists in most entrepreneurs, even as a child that maybe you didn't see as a child because you're a kid, but your parents are probably like, yeah, we knew this was the path for her all along.
0: Were were your parents entrepreneurs or... So my parents were
1: entrepreneurs. I would say more again entrepreneurial spirit. Like my mom just has that hustle, has that fire like she had to. I mean she, you know, didn't have a lot of money growing up. She basically Created like a embroidery business with my grandma, where they would sew like little fun designs onto sweatshirts and go sell them at the flea market. You know, for a cut above, you know what they were buying these sweatshirts at. So she always had that spirit, but she had to. She had to, you know, kind of fend for her herself and her parents and um, you know her siblings and my dad. It yeah he has that entrepreneurial spirit. Him he and my grandpa ran a trucking business that they started I think back in like the '40s out of Brooklyn. And so it's that fire again. It's a spirit. It's not like they were tremendously successful building these massive empires, but they had the idea that they can bet on themselves. And that you know character is certainly something that's intrinsic to my my being.
0: Yeah, it was a, it was a lot more common with my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation to do something have have a have a your own business a side hustle whatever you want to call it uh and maybe still work as well yeah um i feel like culturally that's definitely changed a lot in the last call it 80 years since post world war 2 yeah um but I think you know my part dad of was the immigrant
1: mentality i think it's also like on the you know females women they, they didn't have a lot of opportunities so opportunities right. that they did have they created right like a lot of them i think were side hustling because the mainstream hustle wouldn't allow for them And you know, on the immigrant side, I think it's it's very similar. Like they came and didn't have a bunch of skills that could easily, you know, translate into a job. They had to create jobs if they wanted to have jobs. And I think that's where a lot of it probably stemmed from.
0: Hundred percent. So how did you settle on real estate? Then was it something you were always intrigued by, or? What was your path into the real estate game?
1: Yeah, honestly, no. I was like never intrigued by (laughs) real estate. I was in college. I did a couple internships in sales and trading, and I thought I was going to be a trader. This was after I was pre-med and thought I was going to be a dermatologist. (laughs) So I had a lot of, you know, I would say different career paths that I envisioned for myself, and real estate was never one of them. Um, Honestly, I sort of fell into it. I think you can become great at anything that you commit to, and you can love the processes and the people and the systems that you build. I don't think you need to love like the specific thing that you're selling to really love what, you know, the fact that you're selling something. So I could probably be just as successful if I knew just as much about like cars in being a dealer as I do about real estate and, you know, being a real estate advisor. So I think it's the process, the systems, like the team, the clients that I get to work with that really attract me to what I do, not necessarily, you know, I'm selling unsexy manufacturing buildings most of the time but i found myself in it because honestly this sounds silly but starwood was like the most prestigious company that recruited from dartmouth and they had the smallest class size and i was like all right it's going to be one person from dartmouth and two people from warden and i'm going to be that one person from dartmouth because it's super prestigious and i like prestige and i'm very hyper competitive and i just want to win so i was like i'm going to get that job and so i did and that's sort of how i fell into real estate
0: True attribute of an entrepreneur, put a challenge or a competitive goal in front of you and you're going to go get it. So,
1: right. Even if it's not something that you're qualified for, have any interest <laughs> in, it's just the fact of winning. You know, entrepreneurs like to, to win. So,
0: you know, I think it's so interesting. So, in, in my previous life, I was responsible for hiring like 150 people a year. And you start to learn a lot about recruiting and the way you write job postings. And Men tend to apply for things Yeah, there's like, there's like 10 qualities and like, I got three of those. I could apply. And women tend to lean more towards, uh, 80%. And I don't know if that's a men versus women thing or if it's just a mindset thing. Yeah. Uh, But I think, I think it's pretty interesting that you don't subscribe to that at all. Clearly. Yeah. Um, so it's My definitely favorite more quote, available.
1: I say this a lot like in professional settings, is jump and the net will appear. And you don't say that if you're having to be 80% qualified. You're like, all right, I got 2% down. I'm <laughs> going to take the dive. Something will figure itself out, most likely something that I control because that's just who I am. But, yeah, I mean I think it is – I do think it it is partly like men versus women. It's just a mentality thing um, that women are – you know, I tend to think more risk averse and we won't take that leap until we know there's like solid cement under us. Whereas men are like, all right, I'll jump off this building and hope that somebody catches me. You know, (laughs) I think it's a very different mentality. And I do think, you know, yeah, I don't think I subscribe to that, but I do think it exists.
0: I want to actually talk about two things. I have two questions that pop into my head. One, what was the catalyst event that ultimately set you off? Because I don't think that – for me personally, I had a few distinct things that happened where I was finally just like, all right, F this. I'm out and I'm going doing my own thing. Did you have one of those or was it just like an inevitable outcome of like, okay, I've maxed out my time here. There's no more upward mobility and so it's time for me to take the leap.
1: Yeah. No, that's a great question. I do think it was a combination of like a million little things. Like it wasn't, oh, I had some big blow up with the owner and screw you, I'm out. Like it wasn't that. It was more – You know, I'd been doing really well. I was at that company for three years. I was the top producer. I was producing more than the owners who were active brokers, you know, as well. And I had been, you know, approaching them. I want more resources. I want, you know, more staff. I need a better team to really scale. And they weren't really receptive to that. Like I ultimately brought on my brother-in-law. I was paying him myself for a while because they just weren't giving me the resources that I needed to really get to the next level that I, you know, I wanted to go after, So it kind of felt like a little bit of a ceiling, like, you know, you're making us enough money, you should be happy with what you're doing, you're making enough money, like, don't aspire higher, basically. So it was kind of that it was a little bit of complacency, it was a little bit of, you know, I felt like I couldn't expand my business the way I wanted to, unless I really took things to the next level, just based on certain, you know, limitations of that firm. So it kind of just got to that point where, you know, and the timing was just such that I was about to sign on for another year. And I was like, is this really what I want to do for the next year? Or is it, you know, just time to kind of make that leap? Have I learned enough? And, you know, the answers to those questions was, yes, it's it's time. And so, you know, that's really when I made the, the shift. It wasn't like a big, you know, dramatic blow up scene or anything like
0: that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So how did you decide on the name Ascension? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was one, like not to be cheesy and symbolic, but we wanted to have a name that had meaning and, you know, reflected where we want this business to go. And we don't know exactly where, you know, at the time when we launched, but we know it's up and to the right. So Ascension, you know, from a, <laughs> a meaning standpoint, you know, obviously reflects the growths that we're trying to achieve and, you know, the, the goals that we're aiming for is just like shoot for the moon kind of thing. And alphabetically, we wanted it to be in the beginning of the alphabet so that, you know, on any conferences or anything like that, <laughs> we're showing up first. So there was some meaning behind that. And the old yellow the, pages strategy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's real. You know, you scroll, people are scrolling quickly and they're not making it to Z a lot of the time. And we had also spoke with some, you know, marketing professionals who said like three syllables is, you know, very attractive, I guess. So, you know, we we went with that route. And also from a, (laughs) this is kind of funny, but from an international standpoint, we always knew we wanted to be, you know, international. We're very much doing deals all across Europe and the UK right now. And we wanted a word that could sound a little bit you know, rom- romance languages. So we just closed a deal in Spain and I put like an accent over the O and I was like, Ascension, just close a sale lease back in Spain. <laughs> awesome. so, you know, we're kind of being playful with it, but we wanted something that could also sound normal in other languages.
0: Yeah, has a great ring to it. Um, can we talk about your biggest sale lease back sale ever? What's the biggest deal you've ever That's done?
1: That's a good question.
0: You um, talked about one that, that was like a car wash deal that was pretty astounding. Yeah.
1: That was That's probably That's not the biggest. I think the biggest is probably like in one, you know, transaction, obviously we do a lot of work with repeat business and like we'll go back to the same company for kind of follow-ons. But in all of one transaction, this is probably my most exciting deal. Um, it's like my favorite case study. So basically a business there's a tier one auto supplier, had just gone through bankruptcy, 363 sale, was just acquired by a private equity firm. And because of the 363 process, they were able to buy the real estate for basically the appraised values, which was $60 million. So the private equity fund bought the real estate for $60 million. We had conducted a sale leaseback analysis. And you know it was, I think, like eight locations in the US, one in Mexico, and one in the Netherlands. And we thought the value we can get was closer to like 110000000 million. And we're like, we think we can get $110 million. But the business was negative EBITDA, right out of bankruptcy, like a lot of hair, a lot of, you know, distress. So we told them this is the value that we can probably get once the business has stabilized. And the private equity firm was like, okay, well, what do you think we can get right now? And we were like, eh, probably nothing. Like, this is really challenging. And, you know, I don't know that we can even transact like it's kind of binary but they were like well let's just try so we're like and this is like one of our best clients and we're honestly like friends with the team so we're like managing expectations like this is a hail mary but we will give it everything we got we ended up getting the sale east back done for the u.s component at like 85 million i think europe was like another 10 mexico was like another 10 It, it basically was all in like around 110 million they had just bought the real estate like 35 days prior at 60 million and we flipped it at 110 with the business not having been turned around. Like our analysis is based on, you know, some sort of stabilization. The company was still very early days like in their turnaround under their new ownership and it was just like a kick ass deal. It literally the associates who worked on the deal, the founder of the firm took them to the Super Bowl like in his private jet that year. Like they were, you know, so thankful to us and we were so appreciative of them that like they trusted us when we didn't even really trust that we could get it done at that time just given, you know, the the status of the credit but Yeah, that was honestly one of the most fun deals I've worked on. And probably like up there, you know, with some of the larger ones as well.
0: Yeah, damn. That's that's a heck of an arbitrage.
1: Yeah. No, it literally, like when they fundraise in their PPM, like for the fund, they have that deal. I won't say the name obviously, but they have that deal as like a separate deal that they did like the blank company sale back, And it's like 1100% IRR because it was so quick too, <laughs> like right after, you know, they bought it and then basically just flipped out all the real estate at a very aggressive, you know, price.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. What's well, been the hardest part of going out on your own? Um, you obviously had an incredible network, Um, you got some great people that work for you, but it, it can be lonely, you know, as an entrepreneur, what for you, what's been the hardest part?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm honestly so thankful to my team like that. It's really not lonely because we're all just so like intertwined. We're so close. I mean, we're in our office. Everyone's here. Most of us are here. Some of us are virtual, but we talk every single day. Everybody, you know, is very, it's a very close knit team. So it doesn't feel lonely from that regard, which is really nice but i think the hardest part for me is just like again managing that balancing act of growth areas expansion scale with protector downside at all costs and that i think forces us to make decisions that as an entrepreneur i have to make but if i were working at another brokerage firm where my downside was protected basically you know obviously the upside is also limited but you wouldn't have that you know that trade off and sometimes making that decision is the hardest one because you don't know how it's, you know, it's going to pan out. You could win, you could lose, and you need to be able to be like nimble enough and managing, you know, your overhead and your fixed costs to a point where these wouldn't be such, you know, dramatic losses if they didn't go kind of according to plan.
0: Yeah. Love that. Well, can we get tactical? Can we, can we educate our audience a little bit on sale leaseback and why everybody needs to be considering that in their acquisition strategy?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say for your audience specifically, like working with, you know, SMB, acquirers, ETA, whatever you want to call it, groups that are, you know, getting to entrepreneurship through acquisition, through buying companies, I think are really gravitating to the strategy, obviously, for the reason that, you know, a lot of the time this is replacing equity that you'd have to put in or go out and raise. And, you know, for for those, business acquires as well, a lot of the time the sale SPAC can be a decent component of the overall transaction. Some even where we coined the term "sale SPAC free roll, you know, gaining a free roll and basically buying the business for free because of the spread that the sale SPAC creates. I will say we're getting a ton of interest and mostly from Twitter of groups that want to do this, but it's going to take a lot of reps and a lot of, you know, looking at a lot of opportunities to really find the one, especially where the free roll can make sense because so many factors have to come together but we've done it, right? We've done it a number of times across a number of different industries. So for the groups that can identify that opportunity and we can, you know, execute and structure and get it done on that, you know, sales back spec free-roll structure, it's, I mean, it's just a home run. So there's a lot of groups out there digging for that opportunity. And even groups where, you know, it's not forming 100% of the acquisition stack, but it's a decent component of the overall transaction and it's cheaper, you know, to use sale-leaseback capital than it is for traditional debt, especially in this market. There's no personal recourse, you know, there's no financial covenants. It still makes a ton of sense. So, I think mm-hmm. we're we're definitely getting a lot of attraction um, from, you know, the SMB kind of buyer universe that are buying these assets that tend to be more, you know, real estate intensive.
0: Is, is there like a certain, I don't know, recipe or target acquisition that you should kind of be looking for in order to find that sweet spot. Cause I, I, I feel like, you know, you still run into the same thing where the, the seller still has maybe unreasonable expectations about the real estate, what they think it's worth. So you're still having to navigate that pricing situation. Yeah. Um, but what, what do you look for? What's the nuance that I should be seeking out when I'm looking at a business that's doing a sale leaseback? Cause we'll, so for color, we'll go audit like LoopNet net and see who's doing sale leasebacks and then go pursue that owner saying, hey, you guys are obviously trying to create liquidity. Yeah. You know, maybe this is a great time to consider selling your business. Um, That's so yeah, funny because we're doing the, same, the same thing. thing. We're, we're going
1: stuff. to business owners that are thinking about selling or like, you know, they're early stage in bank processes. And we're like, well, wait, maybe you don't need to sell. Maybe a selling right. stock will give you the, you know, liquidity that they are looking for and you can maintain control. So we're, we're yeah. kind of doing the same thing on the sourcing side, which is funny. Um, I mean, like, I think the deals where the seller wants to sell the real estate, and it's not just like a nice to have, but they're saying that's part of the deal. Like, you are more competitive as a bidder if you can buy the real estate and the operating company. Those are typically the best scenarios because we have – usually we're creating spread because we know the seller is making this a requirement. And so typically the pricing expectations that they have on the real estate – are lower than what we can execute on the sale east back, which creates that spread, which again, the sponsor can typically use to help fund a piece of their equity. So those tend to be the best ones where you're not looking for arbitrage you know, necessarily by trying to get the seller to include the real estate, but rather the acquirer has more leverage because the seller is requiring you to include the real estate. So usually you can get more favorable pricing on the sponsor's acquisition, which then allows for more spread when we go you know, to sell through the sale east back.
0: Is there ever a time when you don't recommend somebody does a sale leaseback? Like when it wouldn't make sense for them? Yeah,
1: if you're, you know, not a 100% confident that this is a building that the business is going to be in for the long term. I mean, the last thing we want to do is set up a 15, 20-year sale leaseback and then you come to the landlord in year or 2 and you're like, eh, we I'm actually out. need to vacate." Right. That'll make everybody look bad, so we certainly don't want to be in a situation like that. Um so we, you know, obviously it's part of our underwriting if we understand the mission criticality of the building to this business. And we can kind of check the box that the replacement costs are super high or super sticky, tons of equipment. This is a profit center for the business. And all that really checks the box. It makes it very unlikely that there would be a problem in the business signing up for a long-term lease. But that is one of the things that we certainly look at because this is a long-term arrangement and nobody wants to have to undo you know, documentation or unwind transactions that you put together.
0: Yeah, so examples would be like obviously car wash real estate and the car wash business, mm-hmm. manufacturing, right? Yep. The, the one that you guys actually quoted for us, which was a cement burial vault company and uh, the, you know all the development of the concrete and all that was done on site. Super totally. critical to the overall business. Yeah, um,
1: great okay, examples. So- I mean really anything where you can say this is where the operating company operates – right? So even a medical practice, like a dentist's office, you know, they need that site to operate their business because that's their business. So if you're a manufacturer, restaurant, you know, like I said, healthcare, medical, industrial, even for distributors, like if this is your distribution center, you know, maybe you're not producing something here, but you need that to your core, you know, business operations.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. Okay, cool. Well, what, what's keeping you awake at night right now, right? You're now a Yoda kind of looking at the other side yeah. of entrepreneurship, you know, whether that's, what you're concerned about, or what you're what you're excited about, what's on your mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about our European expansion. I'm actually going out to all different places in Europe next month for the next month. So we'll be throughout awesome. like the UK, Germany, France, Netherlands, Belgium. I'm missing a couple of places, but we'll be all over. My you know my partner Nina and I are going for like basically four weeks, just meeting with different sponsors and different groups that we're working with. So really excited about the European takeover, if you will. You know, there's a lot of low hanging fruit from a lot of sponsors that just don't even know about this strategy. So we're really excited to kind of bring that, you know, to the mainstream throughout Europe. I think that'll be a big avenue, you know, for growth for us over the next, you know, couple of years. Um, Mm -hmm. That's one thing that super excited about in terms of the market, you know, obviously the market, is in its strongest, you know, self right now. The private equity M and A market is a bit slow, so hoping that that, you know, rebounds in, you know, the fourth quarter. Seems like after Labor Day, a bunch of bankers are bringing out new deals, so we'll hope that that's the case because, you know, M and A is it fuels a large part of our private equity and you know financial sponsors business. So hoping that that rebounds, that's definitely something that, you know, we're always watching and seeing what's going on with rates, because especially for family and founder and businesses where they've owned the real estate a long time, super rate sensitive, you know, they don't need to sell, they've owned the property for 50 years. So if the cap rates make sense and pricing makes sense, they will. If it doesn't, they'll hold on for another, you know, 10 years or maybe intergenerational. So you know, obviously we'll have to see what what happens with cap rates. Hopefully 2024 brings some, you know, stabilization or downward movement, but I don't know. We'll just have to see.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Last question. What do you think the difference is between entrepreneurs who are successful and those who give up, quit or never get started?
1: That's a good question. Um, I think it's, I do think your safety net plays a part in that because I think it would be, ignorant to say, like, just keep trying, trying. If you have three kids at home and you're failing, like, don't keep trying, go get a job, like support your family and, you know, protect your downside. So I think it's also important to not lose sight of the fact that people have privilege, people have, you know, backbones, people have safety nets that are different from other people. So to just say entrepreneur versus entrepreneur without looking at their broader environment and what safety nets they do have, I think would be silly and probably ignorant. So I think people need to, you know, evaluate their lives and their environments holistically before making that, do I, you know, keep trying or do I quit? And, you know, maybe it's not quitting. It's just realizing that this is not for you right now. And you can come back to it at another time, but maybe you need to build up your safety net, you know, get a job, build some savings so that you can go out and take that risk again a couple years later. And I don't think that that's, you know, the worst thing. And I don't think that that's failure. Um, But I think the people that keep trying, in addition to their safety net, it, again, it's intrinsic, like it's in their blood, they can't see themselves working at a job when they look at the next 40 years of their career, or 20 years of their career, like that makes them sick thinking that they're going to be <laughs> making someone else rich for that long. I think that's inner blood. I think that's intrinsic.
0: I heard a great quote the other day, it said there's two doors in life, one called security and one called freedom. And if you choose security, you get neither. And if you choose freedom, you get both. The risk of it all is that it just might not work out.
1: Right, you and may I, just fail and have nothing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but right, when you choose security, I mean, it's like almost a you're you're certain what your outcome is going to be. Right, there's only yeah. so much money you can make. Only so you're so you have a uh, ceiling, you
1: can, but you also have a floor.
0: Yeah, you get this. I mean, if somebody wanted to go be a trader, I used to be a commodities trader, right? Your your upside potential is congruent to your downside risk. Right. And so you know when you choose a job, your downside risk is much much lower. Right. But when you choose entrepreneurship. It's just entrepreneurship,
1: risk aversion because your expected value may be the same. But if you're looking at this versus that versus that, like that's about, you know, what's your risk appetite?
0: Yeah, asymmetric bet. Right. Well, if, if people uh, want to follow along, they connect with your story. How do they reach out to you? What's the best social media platforms for them to follow you on? And uh, shameless plug for your business URL as well.
1: Yeah. So business URL website, ascensionadvisory.com. My email, chelsea at ascensionadvisory.com. And you can also reach me on Twitter, Chelsea N Mandel. And I'm one of the most accessible people. So if you reach out, I probably will respond within 24 hours. So look forward to connecting with you all.
0: All right. You heard it, guys. Sometimes your entrepreneurial journey just kind of lands in your lap. You don't set out to actually go get into real estate. uh, But maybe you end up in real estate or whatever your entrepreneurial journey is. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to go out there and grind a little bit, learn get beat up a little bit, Um, but if you just stay consistent, then you too can make the entrepreneurial leap. So until next time, Chelsea, thanks for being on the show and I look forward to doing some deals.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was great.
0: Yeah, you bet.